0: The movie was wild
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, uh, I, yes. I watched I watched it I watched it last night, and the it it was a terrific, terrific film, but also very strange, and I appreciated the manner in which the film would present ideas, and some of them were just sort of left. We don't need to resolve these. we're just going to leave this. And you can make of it what you, what you will if you're interested in picking up this theme or thinking about it or asking questions with fellow viewers later, you can. If you're not interested, don't worry about it. Uh, but we have no interest in this film in actually resolving all of these pieces. And there were some large concepts that were just sort of dropped in the film. Uh, so I, uh, the, uh, yeah, the, the being being John Malk- Malkovich movie, I, I thought it was a terrific film. Really glad that we watched it. I could see some similarities and overlaps with some of the stuff that we've been talking about. So I just wanted to share the film was wild and I very much enjoyed watching it.
2: Yeah, why don't we, uh, why don't we just get a, a couple more reviews of the film, because maybe I'll, um, I'll start at the film and then uh, we, can, uh, we can head the,
0: uh, to other places. Maybe I'll, I'll jump in really quickly. The thing that maybe I enjoyed, I, I figured I was gonna enjoy the film very early on is when you have the person who has some credential uh, to suggest that they understand a speech and speech patterns and decipherable speech and because this person who clearly has no expertise in this area, but because this person has some credential from some place, the other person who clearly has no difficulty communicating verbally was convinced that, uh, that they had some sort of problem and wouldn't listen to an outside third, third party objective, neutral, no bias, has no, no need, um, to, to say anything differently, uh, I suppose, other than he's you know, going to work in this place or going for a job. But this person is just openly sharing, I, I can hear you just fine. And then the same thing, of course, happens a little bit later in the film with his, with his wife. I thought that was very early in the film. Somebody with a credential tells you this is how something is. And it, you take away all other evidence. It couldn't have been more clearly presented evidence. But no, no, the expert has suggested this is what is the case, even if it's about me and therefore i am now going to add that to my own way the way in which i interact in the world so that was it's very a great early. credential too like a doctorate in speech impedimentology from case <laughs> western uh yeah. that's so a uh... that was it, was it was very early in the film and i think that was the moment where i was like okay i'm into this and i'm <laughs> I, and i want to see what happens what happens next so it started off very well and i thought the whole film was terrific i mean for a while charlie
2: kaufman could do no wrong because of that movie and the process by which it was made is very strange, right? And I mean, uh, and the film does have a sequel uh, for those those who who, uh, who wish to see it. In the sense, this film is a is a pretty wild text. Charlie Kaufman had been a fairly ordinary writer in Hollywood uh, until this film came out. Um, had written things that were not that weird. Uh, and, um, one of the key moments where at the beginning of the the creation of this film is John Malkovich receives a copy of the script from Charlie Kaufman, having never previously encountered him. So to be John Malkovich and to get a, to get in the mail one day, a script called being John Malkovich, um, would be pretty odd. Um, there's a profound intellectual genealogy to the film that I, I went to some trouble to piece together. Um, both in the um, today's talk and in um, the second time I talk about Idris Shah, because uh, Idris Shah is in uh, today's uh, lecture a bunch, um, I was very interested in the late 90s in looking at the provenance <coughs> Of weird, weird pieces of popular culture that just seem to arise out of nothing, and so um, one of the first references you see in *Being John Malkovich* when when he's on the street doing the uh, the puppets um, and that the child comes up to watch the theater, it's um, the uh, it's the letters of Heloise and Abelard. Uh, that's the play, and when he finally goes on tour with the puppets, it's called the Héloïse and Abelard Tour. Uh, So this is all dedicated to um, these uh, two uh, 13th century personalities, um, two of the sort of celebrities of high medieval France. Um, In uh, the letters of Heloise and Abelard are a famous piece of correspondence. That's a fundamental part of the Western canon. Um, Abelard was part of the social movement that brought universities into being, that moved teaching out of the cathedral schools and onto the streets of Paris. And, um, Peter Abelard was a great lecturer who was basically blacklisted in the cathedral schools. Uh, because of his unorthodox ideas, unorthodox approaches to teaching. And in the the, the 12th century, there was a critical mass of people who'd been blacklisted in the cathedral schools who were leading intellectuals. And uh, they got work through what would become universities. These were student-teacher co-ops that were formed, uh, where groups of students would pool their resources, to learn outside of the cathedral schools, and this ultimately snowballed into the university system. I like to feel on a, on a good day when I'm happy with this institute's work that we're, we're doing something similar uh, centuries later, that, um, uh, that there is a crisis of pluralism and legitimacy uh, in our university system, and that more of us are taking that learning into the street as a consequence. Uh, Abelard was not able to make most of his uh You couldn't really live on what the co-ops paid. And so uh, many of these uh, great men, they were all men at the time, um, became uh, tutors to uh, the children of the aristocracy. And um, Abelard's best student was a young woman named Heloise. Um, there was a big age difference. They fell in love, the affair was found out, Abelard was chased across France by Heloise's relatives and castrated. Uh, He then retired uh, from university teaching and became the abbot of a monastery. Decades later, Heloise became the abbess of a monastery and she wrote to him about their affair. And the correspondence is a debate about whether it is more important to be famous and loved by people or to be loved by God. And so there's this debate about the value of Abelard's celebrity. There's a debate about the value of Heloise's romantic love for him and a comparison against um, uh, the love of God. And there's a discussion of how the love of God is different in nature. So there's this uh, big debate from the 12th century about celebrity and um, fame and whether it makes you God-like and how it interacts with your relationship with God. these letters were published. They were an epistolary debate at the time, and were canonized as probably one of the most important works of the Scholastic Renaissance or High Middle Ages. In 1970, a German monk, um, in the uh, Alsatian, a German-speaking monk in the Alsatian region of the um, France-Germany border, um discovers a set of wax tablets uh, between two anonymous correspondents, a middle-aged man and a young woman. He translates these texts from Latin into German. And um, the text is, and initially this guy, it's not sure whether these tablets are fakes. It's not sure who the, editor, uh, who the authors are. But a growing body of opinion using various analytical methods comes to believe that this is the original correspondence between Heloise and Abelard de- during their romantic affair. And pretty much all of the thematic material that does not appear in the letters of Heloise and Abelard that we've had all along that appears in Being John Malkovich appears in this second round of correspondence. It also appears that um, if you look at the publication dates, the what are called found or the lost letters of Heloise and Abelard, their English edition came out four months before Being John Malkovich was completed as a script. Uh, what these letters are very interested in is the question of how romantic love and other factors build what psychologists today called ego boundaries. Um, that, uh, the correspondents argue that they are so in love that their ego boundaries are collapsing that um, it is unclear where one person stops and another person starts. Uh, And um, whether that's good, whether that's bad, what the meaning of all this is, is explored through these letters. So when you unite the two corpora of Heloise and Abelard letters, you get the thematic material of being John Malkovich. Um, And that's important in a few ways. It allows for this very interesting exploration of these related ideas to happen on the screen uh, and be adapted for an audience that would never read these letters. It's also important because the idea that there was a serious discussion of the formation of ego boundaries and their nature from and and how they affect subjectivity is not something we would have credited to the 12th and 13th centuries. It's something that we would have thought of as a post-enlightenment idea. So one of the things that this does is it pulls back in time the start of some central debates about the nature of self. So wanted you guys to see that. Those who are interested in just sort of Following this mad storytelling style, I'll um, I'll send you a Dropbox link for adaptation. Um, adaptation, just to let you know, when adaptation came out in 1999, I was phoned by many friends, whose only question was, or only questions were, "Did you see adaptation? And is this what it's like to be you?" Uh, so, um, uh, the, the Kaufman character in adaptation is pretty close to, to, uh, me 20 years ago. Um, I won't be played by Nicolas Cage, but, uh, anyway, so let's, um, let's get into, um, one of our forays into philosophy. And of course I'm going to historicize the foray because that's, that's just how, uh, how the style works here. I'm going to begin by talking about um, the origins of our current formulation of the nature of self. Prior to the Enlightenment, uh, there were a number of really important um, texts and works of art Uh, that came out of the regions of Europe that were already going through the early stages of capitalism. So we see um, massive contributions to Enlightenment era thinking uh, coming out of the Netherlands and England beginning in the 16th rather than the 18th century. In many ways, although the French most enthusiastically embraced the Enlightenment in the 18th century, they were late to the game when it comes to Enlightenment thinking. Uh, One of the most foundational thinkers, particularly for people who think about the political aspects of the Enlightenment, is Thomas Hobbes. Now, Hobbes is not described as a liberal but Hobbes lays the intellectual foundations for what will become liberalism. Liberals will disagree with Hobbes on a number of crucial points, but it's the intellectual furniture that Hobbes creates and it's Hobbes's narratives that, um, that build, uh, that are the necessary condition for characters like John Locke to come along in the centuries following, or Jean-Jacques Rousseau, and offer liberal theories of politics. So Hobbes' big important book, uh, Leviathan. Um, his uh, The Leviathan is a book written um, in the aftermath of the uh, first and most severe of the English Civil Wars. Uh, Hobbes has lived through a breakdown in social order that's more profound than a conventional succession crisis because it's an emerging new class that is fighting the aristocracy for dominance. Um, these uh, And for this reason, uh, because there's a fight not just about who runs the order but what the order itself is, we see Uh, an on the ground experience of the civil war as traumatic, not just for its belligerence on the battlefield, but for all of English society. So one of the things to remember to see Hobbes in a sympathetic light um, is to understand his lived experience of war. Now the big conclusion of Leviathan is the need for a central state monopoly on violence. This is his sense of the the absolute bedrock building blocks of society. That because you had these two armies that couldn't agree on anything, um, everybody, regular people experienced tremendous violence. And because there was no sense of where authority was located, people committed crimes against each other at a much greater rate because of a general sense of social breakdown, right? It's one of those failed state narratives of, you know, Beirut in the 70s and 80s. That's, that's the world of Hobbes or the world Hobbes was crawling out of. So Hobbes believes that power must be centralized in the person of the sovereign and that the sovereign's army must have a monopoly on violence. What are Hobbes' qualifications for someone being the sovereign? Uh, His sense of the qualifications are tautological. You have to have an army that can beat all the other armies. Uh, So legitimacy in the Hobbesian worldview comes from the ability to monopolize force. And this is not unlike the long-term idea of the Mandate of Heaven in China, right? If you can't control the country, you've lost the Mandate of Heaven. Therefore, you're not the emperor. Uh, The enforcement of the monopoly is everything. But this is the moment where it enters the thought of the West. And uh, people reach different conclusions from it. Now, Hobbes... builds a whole worldview around his experience, and it comments on all kinds of things beyond how to run a state. Um, Hobbes argues that the origin of society is the emergence of the first strong man who can monopolize violence around him. And Hobbes suggests that um, without this, all is lost. We live in what he calls the state of nature. And in Hobbes' view, human beings' natural state is you are solitary, uh, violent, and constantly competing with others to survive right, he describes the state of nature as a life that is nasty, brutish, and short. That's the most famous Hobbes quote. Um, So the idea is then, the origin of society is that, but that eventually people do realize that the state of nature is terrible. And they agree to submit themselves to the sovereign and his gang because it will make their lives better through the imposition of order, irrespective of the fairness or justice or legitimacy of the particular sovereign. That the abs- that a sovereign is always better than the state of nature. Very conservative argument. Never try to overthrow the government. Uh, but this, re- um, and, but at the time Hobbes is writing, the new world has been discovered and People use the new world as a kind of tabula rasa for their ideas. They typically assert uh, in the 16th century that whatever they believe is true about the original state of humanity is how people live in the new world. uh, Based on no real data. There's a huge amount of apocryphal data that comes back from the new world Most stories of the New World are written in Europe by people who've never been there. And so you can find a body of literature saying pretty much anything about the New World at this point. And often that's just because people generate it. So Hobbes believes that this is what the society in the New World is, that people just fall out of their mother's womb, their mother vanishes, and within two years, they're all beating each other in the head with sticks and stealing each other's yams that's existence and um so hobbes descends from thinkers before him he goes no, no no families are not natural there is no natural centripetal force that draws human beings together uh families kingdoms these things they don't exist because human beings naturally cohere or want to be together they exist only through the threat of violence and that's why kings must dominate their subjects. That's why fathers must beat their children. Uh, nothing holds us together other than violence or the threat of violence. And um, this um, this is a radical new idea that fits in with a bunch of new theology that's come out saying the same stuff. Um, so one of the things that Hobbes would argue is that, um, and one of the assumptions that he passes on to all of the liberal thinkers who respond to him is that you as an individual do not emerge from society, that you are preformed as an individual with your own consciousness, your own opinions, and that you are separate from other people from the very beginning. Um, And this is essentially the birth of the liberal self. So, and as Hobbes' ideas are developed through people like Locke and Rousseau and uh, other thinkers right up to the present day, the idea then is that what you like is something you're born with. Um, what you like isn't changed by how people treat you. What you like isn't changed by trauma and things like that. Um, you can see how the idea that, um, how we talk and think about sexual orientation is deeply rooted in the emergence of these enlightenment ideas. The idea that the kind of sex people might like or find acceptable might change in their life based on experiences is not one that's friendly to a Hobbesian or liberal idea of the self. Uh, so So it's really important to recognize that all of our political theory in the West, And huge amounts of our social theory in the West are based on the work of Locke, Hobbes, and Rousseau, who took inaccurate information about the New World, applied it to primitive human societies, and peddled that as social science. Now, I'm not saying they did that. I mean, everybody was doing that at the time. What's striking is the longevity of this bullshit because by the 1840s, people were figuring out that like primatology was starting to happen anthropology was starting to happen by the 1890s Franz Boas is on the BC coast uh, you know early 20th century Max Weber's um, inventing sociology and so. As the 19th century, for the second half of the 19th century, up to the present day, all of the foundational beliefs of liberalism have been found from a scientific perspective to be false. Um, Human consciousness is reactive. Um, you You have to imagine the other before you can understand you have a self. Um, that uh, there is strong centripetal force that holds human beings together, that fear of rejection, fear of ostracism, fear of disconnection from family are extraordinarily powerful social forces, Um, that the earliest human groups did everything together, that the human beings were never solitary hunters. Um, All of this stuff has kept rolling in. But what's fascinating is our entire theory of economics and the basis of our theories of democracy and human rights are all premised on this junk anthropology. If you call young earth creationism junk science, if you, we, we, we know that there's such a thing as junk science when it comes to the physical sciences. When it comes to the social sciences, there is also junk science science that has been utterly discredited with masses of evidence. And yet, we do not question any of the models that rest atop liberal junk science. Uh, And so liberalism survives, even though it is premised on the discredited anthropology of Thomas Hobbes. So let's go back a little further now because there's plenty of work that was done on this long before Thomas Hobbes came along. I think one of the most important theorists of the nature of the self, uh, not that this person is um, correct exactly, but they raise the profound questions that we need to ask. Um, One of... I mean, generally, we we don't agree with Plato about very much. There are only really a couple of things that we agree on. One is that arguing helps you get to the truth, and the other is that you shouldn't have sex with kids. Um, and those are solid beliefs of Plato's that we should stand by 100%. Um, Plato's really the first person to make that intervention. Um, in uh, in his work uh, in, um, uh, it's not Timaeus, anyway, it doesn't matter. Um, uh, given the importance of large-scale child abuse in building the original agricultural despotisms, um, it's a shocking intervention of Plato's. It's really minimized. Nobody had bothered putting up their hands saying, hey guys, don't fuck kids. I think that might screw them up. Uh, now, there's a reason for this Plato comes, Plato created his academy, and one of the reasons he created this, an educational institution, was to make that a rule. Because in the academies that preceded Plato's, um, uh, the uh, boys who were sent there, um, some of their tuition was paid by their parents, and some of it was taken out in ass. Like they're, they just, you, you had to, um, endure a certain level of sexual violence in order to be educated. It's a system, of course, the British have maintained right up to the present day. Has produced such fine uh, statesmen as uh, Boris Johnson and David Cameron. Uh, I think really that's why they were so scared of Jeremy Corbyn. He would be the first English prime minister who hadn't been raped in school. Uh, so I, I think that, so this is a common way that education systems for the elite work. Plato stood against that, and it appears from everything we've read about Plato that he had some things, he had some views about his lived experience that we can learn a lot from, even if it's a mistake to generalize them to the rest of us. Uh, Yes, Amina, I think this question, I'm sorry, I just just, uh, popped up on my screen a second ago. Yeah, to briefly return to Hobbes, why would people think that? what was inside them from the beginning um, was their essence and it was unchangeable because of predestination because of the incredible popularity of Calvinism. So um, this was a new theological theory that was rapidly absorbed by the class for whom a the theology had been designed. Um, I go through this at some length in my economic history lectures uh, about how um, how this, uh, how this, this doctrine of double predestination that emerges in 1535, um, is part of this larger, um, process of class formation that this is the bourgeoisie, um, become deeply committed to the inalterable nature of self. Uh, now in Plato's, um, in Plato's case, um, Plato, in his theory of the world of forms, if you look at it as physics, it's pretty fucking nutty. Plato believes that, you know, you have a chair in your living room because God thought of the idea of chair, and that um, the material chair is just an imperfect reflection of the image in God's mind, or the form. Uh, Plato lived in a world where the forms were very accessible to him his lived experience, as he describes in The Republic, was that the idea of a thing was not merely better but more viscerally real to him than a physical object that might reflect that idea imperfectly. Um, Plato clearly loved his mentor Socrates, um, and you can see that that. Um, Again, Socrates is not a a great guy. You know, he spent most of his life talking to lower nobility, trying to organize a military coup to shut down democracy. Um, uh, But it appears that he never sexually abused Plato Um, and that this is part of Plato's uh, deep respect for him. Um, Another thing you see in Socrates, as imagined by Plato, right, because we have almost no idea who Socrates really was, he's, if if people think Jesus isn't real because there are only four independent sources attesting to his existence, then Socrates sure as shit isn't real because there's one and a half. Um, The Socrates we know is a fictional character created by Plato who may or may not have been like Socrates but you'll notice that Socrates is an extraordinary dick in conversation, that when Plato is showing off how the dialectic works, Socrates doesn't understand that other people's time is their time. He doesn't understand the appropriate social context in which to have conversations. He's constantly conscripting people into arguing with him against their will. Um, Really, you know, there's a, you could probably use um, platonic dialogues to explain sea-lioning in the present day. Uh, So, what do we get from, and we also see that Socrates and Plato have very few friends. Um, They're at odds with most of the philosophers in Athens, and although Plato experiences great success once he institutionalizes his teaching in the form of the academy, There isn't a natural charisma there. And I think one of the things we're seeing with Plato is a person who would be diagnosed in the autism spectrum today. He doesn't feel that social relations are natural. He doesn't have a talent for them. And he doesn't feel like his self is a particularly natural thing. And when things make sense and are safe, it's in the world of forms, when the people fall away and all there are are ideas. And I think this is part of what gives Plato this necessary outsider perspective to think about aspects of the self that we would never interrogate. Um, when something feels natural, you don't interrogate it. And we, we owe so much to people who feel uncomfortable um, because that, it's, it's that discomfort um, that's foundational to getting us to think, to problematize things. So Plato comes out with his theory of the soul, right? And, um, there are three parts to the soul, uh, and, um, they, um, and they don't interact easily. That there's, um, and they're largely reiterated by Freud. Um, I mean, again, Freud's one of these people where it's funny when you think about the work they actually did. Um, Spent a lot of time gaslighting young women who had been sexually abused by their fathers, coming up with elaborate theories to explain it away, um, claiming he'd cured the common cold with cocaine. And um, his really great contribution was rebranding Plato's theory of the soul with the id, the ego, and the superego. These are essentially the same as Plato's three parts. Um, So one of Plato's assumptions is that your will is not unified. You have different parts of your will, and depending upon whether they point upwards towards the world of forms or downwards towards the world of matter, Um, they're going to tell you to do different things. That inside you is a site of conflict, not unity. That you want a bunch of different things that are fighting each other for control of you. Um, And and we can see how, how Freud's resurrection of Plato is part of this larger movement to get away from the liberal theory of the soul. As unified and unchangeable. Um, <clears throat> uh, so, Plato's phenomenal at problematizing self other dynamics and for thinking about the disunity that exists inside our skulls. Uh, now, Plato has a literary tradition to fall back on. There's already a word in Attic Greek um, for. Um, this experience of of internal disunity that they get from ancient Greek that shows up in the Iliad where um, the characters there have multiple intentions inside them and fight them. Now, at this point, it's a real shame Edward's not here for this one. Hopefully, you'll get to see this later. Um, A very important book for me, parts of which are now discredited, Uh, is Julian Jaynes' work, The Origins of Consciousness and the Breakdown of the Bicameral Mind. Um, Jaynes has a lot of ideas about brain physiology in his book, almost all of which have now been shown to be incorrect. If his theory makes sense, it's in spite of his ideas about brain physiology, not because of them. Uh, But Julian Jaynes essentially is a psychologist who chose to do a literary analysis of ancient texts. He looked at the Gilgamesh Epic in all of its versions. He looked at the earliest books of um, the Old Testament, particularly the book of Amos, uh, and he looked at the Iliad and Odyssey. He essentially looked at stuff that we felt was pretty securely text from 800 BC or earlier. And he conducted a literary analysis um, to look at the voice of God or of gods in these texts. And James's theory is a shocking and compelling one. He argues that human beings built the first cities before we became conscious in the modern sense of the term, that we did not have interior selves that it's quite easy to be social by simply reacting to the other people around you. That the cell that that initially people's selves didn't exist inside them; they existed only at points of interaction. People are talking to each other, and that's the only place consciousness exists. Um, and I. I that that, that's a good thing to keep in one's back pocket. To assume that people have been thinking about things before they start talking about them is almost always a mistake. Um, if I had to do all of my thinking without talking to you, I would be a lot less intelligent. Uh, I often find out what I think about things at moments like this. Um, I, I, I will propound some theory in a class that I've thought of while I'm articulating it. And I think that's actually a pretty common way to be. But our liberal morality and junk science, um, these things uh, cause us to see that way of being or talking as irresponsible right? Did you really consider this idea? Was this idea really yours? Uh, is it what you've always thought? Uh, we've become reluctant to think aloud with one another. Now as Jonathan says, speech was going on for a long time. And I would argue from watching children learn language and watching children learn conversation, that these things are actually quite far apart. Or you can just go to the zoo and watch Gibbons. Um, Taking turns, making sounds is fun. Um, we, you don't have to bootstrap any meaning to it in order for it to be generative of human community. Um, and in our civilization, children learn speech about three years before they learn conversation. They don't know when it's their turn to speak. Uh, they know how to express ideas through language before they can guess those things and uh so we can see you can sort of pull away this conflation we have between language and meaning that um uh when you watch children first learning conversation you notice they often will they appear to be counting in their heads trying to guess when it's their turn uh now all of none now a lot of this stuff is not janes what what's important about janes is he argues that consciousness emerged far later in humans than we imagine and it emerged in a very strange way um janes argument is it emerged through a technology and that technology was the idol um that if you follow his literary analysis, what's happening when Moses talks to God is Moses needs God to hear himself. That it's just Moses talking to himself, but the only way Moses can get access to his thoughts, the only way he can be both people in the game of catch that is consciousness is by externalizing part of his thought into an idol. And James argues that people literally heard idols speak and they went to great efforts to make idols speak. There's a Mormon historian who is mostly a liar, um, who pointed out one very interesting thing on this front that I have had to check, because I have to check all of this guy's claims. But Hugh Nibley, greatest Mormon apologist of the 20th century, pointed out that one of the least explored things that exists across Near Eastern cultures is the prevalence of a, of a ritual be, after you've built the idol and before you start using it called the opening of the mouth. Uh, that something has to open the idol's mouth so that it can talk to you. And uh, so this is, so basically, right, you're conscious when you're talking to somebody else. So in order to think by yourself, you have to create a fake somebody else that you're in conversation with initially. And so uh, it's why people spend money building idols to facilitate them hearing their own thoughts. It's why people associate their most authoritative thoughts with vastly more powerful entities outside themselves. Anyway, James is useful to us because he um, um, because he falls into that larger Platonic insight that if there is if there's a thing called consciousness, it's dialectical in character that consciousness is you in an adversarial conversation with yourself or you in an interrogative conversation with yourself. And the first people to figure out this trick needed lots of props in order to pull that off. Because the idea that they themselves could contain all those thoughts would be weird. It was more plausible that those were God's thoughts and God was just letting them know. Um, so, uh, the James theory is somewhat useful to us, mainly in, um, in just creating more problems around the nature of self and thinking about what it is. Um, now, one of the fields that's been really important, uh, in, um, establishing a more empirical or a more rooted in evidence idea of the nature of self has been uh, the study of infant development. Um, I mentioned right this big gap between speech and conversation. Uh, the main task of very young infants is to figure out where they stop and the world starts. Uh, because that's not a thing, you know, you are the world when you come into being Um, so if you're hungry, the world is hungry. And if you're screaming, the world is screaming. And this is an experience often of suffering, but of total unity. What gets upsetting for infants, right, as they begin to build selves is to realize that the way their screaming acts on a parent is different than the way their neurology acts on their own limbs. Initially, these things seem identical, but over time, this category of not me comes into being, uh, that I can't send a signal through my nervous system to make that thing move. Therefore, it must be a thing other than me. Uh, so that the idea of ego boundaries um, has been central to this, and it also, of course, allowed us to look into Predatory personality disorders. The arg- uh, an argument uh, made in the DSM four, less so the DSM five, is that the most predatory personality disorders, borderline personality disorder, antisocial, uh, narcissistic, and histrionic, are ego boundary malformation errors. Um, they arise, these predatory behaviors arise because of a fundamental inability to know where I stop and the world starts. Um, narcissistic injury, right? Is the, is the experience of treating a thing outside your body as though it's part of your body and then have it not do what you want. Um, And it's uncanny. It's upsetting, right? I, um, uh, from my own direct experience, right, you can see, um, um, you know, sometimes a narcissist will literally tell you that you are a part of their body and that you doing things that are not their will is causing them excruciating pain, as of course it would. Uh so I have to recognize that um uh we have uh although we have we push back against the liberal idea that there is a you that is unified and pre-existing, we do have to accord with the idea that there are some hard limits on when you stop and another creature starts. And, uh, it's, um, and these are sometimes tough things to hold together. Now, um, I think one of, the, one of the reactions our culture is having to the rise of identitarianism is making some great TV. I uh, strongly recommend uh, season one of True Detective and season one of Westworld as great explorations of these questions of, in the case of True Detective, ego boundaries um, and uh, the preexistence of self. In the case of Westworld, it's an actual one season tribute to Julian Jane's book. Uh, and then it runs out of Julian Jane's and becomes crap. Uh, now the, uh, the last thinker I'm going to mention because this cues us up for later is, uh, when I was reading all this, I looked around for someone whose theory of self was like mine that offered a more comprehensive worldview. And although I am, uh, although I have never, uh, been a Muslim, I've never been raised a Muslim tradition, uh the thinker that i found most compelling uh was idris shah uh he was a uh, london-based sufi mystic in the 20th century he tried to do for sufism what Dizet suzuki did for buddhism and largely failed uh shah's writing while superficially more accessible than suzuki's was actually far too challenging in how it communicated information but here's his theory, um, and it is—it's an elaboration of pre-existing Sufi theory. Um, within us is chaos, um, and we—we we feel all these things. We want all these things, but there really isn't a me inside me. We have a series of selves that we build, because for for Shaw. A self is kind of a bridge. Whenever you're in a, when you're in a particular social context, you, the self you present or how you present to others is a bridge between your consciousness at that moment and the people you're there with. So um, the term code switching is often used for how people from racialized and minority communities have to deal with that right? That you present these highly distinctive selves depending upon your environment. And none of them, and what Shaw would say is none of them is a facade over a real self. Each of the selves is real. They're social in character. You build them as you need them and you throw them away as you need them. And, uh, you know, that I'm presenting a, a particular self here. Um, that uh, if I were in another social context, I might disagree with, might talk differently, etc. Shaw's big insight is this. He says the most dangerous thing to us in reaching enlightenment is something called the commanding self. So what, what is the commanding self? Well, the commanding self is powerless. It's like a color commentator in sports. So they're not a referee, they're not doing play by play. What the commanding self is doing is constructing elaborate and false narratives to explain why all the different things the other selves did are logical and are part of the same plan. It explains away contradictory behavior produced by this chaos of selves and concoct these elaborate stories about what you were really trying to do or what you were really trying to say. The commanding self is attempting to take credit for the work of all of your other selves, but has no power other than the power to narrate this. And Shaw argues that we have mistaken the commanding self for the self. And so the first thing to do is to eradicate the commanding self and then to actually see the disunity that you are and then begin knitting yourself together into something more coherent. Uh, anyway, I, I like that theory very much. Um, and you'll notice here that I've spent the, pretty much the whole hour talking about consciousness rather than social forms of identity, talking about um, Who we think we are rather than the big identity groups we fall into. And that's because in order to think about how identitarianism interacts with big identity groups, we also have to see how it's interacting the other way, how it's interacting with what we might call human or personal psychology. So a lot of the things I put forward here are inconclusive. And we will use different tools. I've 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 suggested at different points in um, in uh, in the talk. Um, the one thing that is most relevant for our sociological analysis, though, is Hobbes, because you can see how Hobbes is crucially important uh, in his idea of permanent pre-existent selves that come into being at the moment you're born and are independent, this is a building block for theories of sexual orientation. It's a building block for um, scientific racism. It's a building block for um, our ideas of gender. Um, Everything, we live in a society where everything is still based on Hobbesian junk science and has historically been for hundreds of years. And um, sometimes we can use that junk science to make good things happen, like legalizing gay marriage. But it's important to recognize the problematic nature of the tool you're using in order to achieve these short-term political objectives. Uh, And so, unlike the speculations of Plato, Shaw, uh, even Homer, um, Hobbes' theory of psychology is tied to these big questions of social identity in a way that other theories are not.
1: I mean, I think Jane's idea is, is trying to to push into the recent past, something which I think really happens in the very distant past and happens early in people's lives, uh, becoming sort of conscious in in dialogue with themselves. Um, I mean, maybe if you need some sort of external object to relate to, you know, like a doll, I mean, there may be some validity to the idea that if you want to have a conversation by yourself, you have to have an interlocutor, which is somehow physical. You can have an imaginary friend or a doll or just some object that you, to whom you attribute a personality. I don't think, I mean, in that sense, the invention of the idol is actually just hunter-gatherers playing with puppies, basically. <laughs> you know, it's it's not something that requires a lot of physical infrastructure. And I think people I basically do this by the time they're age four or something. I think certainly I did. And I think that's yeah, part of being I true mean, I'm, I'm, of I'm years. not
2: going to uh, yeah, I don't think it's I mean you're articulating the mainstream of opinion in contradistinction to Jane's scientific opinion is clearly on your side there, and um, I, uh, I I wouldn't presume to to argue at length. I would say that you need a doll, not a puppy, though, that you in order to become self-conscious, the thing you're working with should be should not have a will of its own that it's a will that you can impose on it
1: okay right? but that's it could be a the walk. advantage of an idol <laughs> or a puppy i mean okay sure yes the puppy clearly has its own will is therefore yeah. not a part of your own but it could be a stone i mean it could be literally anything
2: yeah and i i think uh, and i don't think we do great violence to james's fundamental insight um about consciousness by retrojecting it further into the past or um you know i think that uh, i mean I think the uh, I think that the key thing is that um, Jane's Jane's recognition that the establishment of an internal dialectic is necessary for consciousness. That I'll
1: I'll accept. Yeah, I just don't think it's a technological artifact of you know the the middle Bronze Age. (laughs)
2: I agree that his brain physiology stuff is almost entirely crap. Like he just didn't understand. We didn't have the information about, um, schizophrenia, um, its relationship to hallucination and, uh, well, yeah. and how that interacted with brain physiology.
1: Well, I was going, I was going to say though, that Jane's theory sounds like it may have a lot more validity for people with schizotypal brains than for normal ones. Yeah. But I don't regard the schizotypal brain as the primitive condition.
2: Yes, which Janes does, which I don't either. The, the character of Lucy in the uh, Peanuts, the uh, Charlie Brown, and she's setting up all the time as a psychiatrist or whatever, you know, advice, five cents. And her advice is always totally shit. And, and if you follow it, you're going to get in a world of... Anyways, that sounds like the commanding self. It sounds like Charles Schultz was showing us a commanding self. I mean, what's what's different between Lucy and the commanding self is that um, um, Lucy tells you what to do in the future, not what you have, do- not why you've done what you've done in the past. Uh, I think where um, I think where Lucy is more like the commanding self is where she's holding the football, <laughs> that uh, uh, that um, that you're going to keep doing this thing as this strange ritual act that inheres in who you are.